Chapter Twelve of the Complete Works of Bran, the Iconoclast, Volume One, by William Cowper Bran. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Twelve. Bradley Martin Balmasque. Après moi, le déluge. Mrs. Bradley Martin's sartorial kings and pseudo-queens, her dukes and dubarries, princes and pompadours, have strutted their brief hour upon the mimic stage, disappearing at daybreak like foul night-birds or an unclean dream, have come and gone like the rank eructation of some crapulous Sodom, a mal-odor from the cloace of ancient capitals, a breath blown from the festering lips of half-forgotten harlots, a stench from the sepulchre of centuries devoid of shame. Uncle Sam may now proceed to fumigate himself after his enforced association with royal bummers and brazen bods, may comb the Bradley Martin itch bacteria out of his beard, and consider for the ten-thousandth time the probable result of his strange commingling of royalty-worshipping millionaire and sansculotic mendicant, how best to put a ring in the nose of the golden calf ere it become a phalaris bull and relegate him to its belly. Countless columns have been written, printed, possibly read, anent the Bradley Martin Ball, all the preachers and teachers, editors and other able idiots, pouring forth voluminous opinions. A tidal wave of printer's ink has swept across the continent, churned to atrous foam by hurricanes of lawless gibberish and wild gusts of resounding gab. The Empyrean has been ripped, and the Timpana of the two patient gods, ravished with fulsome commendation and foolish curse, showers of Parthian arrows and wholesale consignments of soft soap, darkening the sun as they hurtled hither and yon through the shrinking atmosphere. A man dropping suddenly in from Mars with a Nicaraguan canal scheme for the consideration of Uncle Sam would have supposed this simian hubbub and answering to-do meant nothing less than a new epoch for the universe, it being undecided whether it should be auriferous or argentiferous, an age of gold or a cycle of silver now that the costly function has funked itself into howling farce an uncomfortable failure and the infuscated revellers recovered somewhat from royal katzenjammer we find that the majestic earth has not moved an inch out of its accustomed orbit that the grass still grows and the cows yet calve that the law of gravitation remains unrepealed, and omnipotence continues to bring forth Mazaroth in his season, and guide Arcturus with his sons. Perchance in time the American people may become ashamed of having been thrown into a panic by the painful effort of a pudgy parvenu to outdo even the Vanderbilts in ostentatious vulgarity. Reverend Billy Kersan's Rainsford, 
cannot save this country with his mouth nor can mrs bradley martin wreck it with her money it is entirely too large to be permanently affected by the folly of any one fool preacher and parvenu were alike making a grandstand play now that the world has observed them and not without interest let us hope that they will subside for a little season this dame du barry extravaganza was not without significance to those familiar with history and its penchant for repetition but was by no means an epoch maker it was simply one more festering sore on the syphilitic body social another unclean maggot industriously wriggling in the melodious carcass of a canine it was another evidence that civilization is in a continual flux flowing now forward now backward a brutal confession that the new world aristocracy is oozing at present through the armida palace or don daniel of dubaridum the bradley martins are henceforth entitled to wear their ears interlaced with laurel leaves as a sign of superiority in their set they won the borough pennant honestly if not easily daylight being plainly visible between their foam-crested crupper and the panting nostrils of the vanderbilts they are now monarch of rag fair chief giesticuti of the boundless realm of nescience and noodledom mrs bradley martin has triumphed gloriously raised herself by her own garters to the vulgar throne of vanity the dais of the almighty dollar she is now delphic oracle of doodlebugs and hierophant of the hot stuff viva regina likewise rats like most of new york's aristocracy she is of even nobler lineage than lady ver de ver daughter of a hundred earls having been sired by a duly registered american sovereign early in the present century his coat of arms was a cooper's ads rampant a beer-barrel couchant and the motto two heads are better than one by wearing his neighbor's cast-off clothes and feeding his family on corn-bread and sow-belly he was able to lay the foundation of that fortune which has made his daughter facile princeps of new york's patricians john jacob astor who acted as royal consort to the cooper's regal daughter in the quadrille d'honneur is likewise descended from noble knights of labor and dames of high degree he traces his lineage in unbroken line to that haughty johann jacob who came to america in the steerage wearing a limburger linsey woolsey and a pair of wooden shoes beginning life in the new world as a rat-catcher he soon acquired a gallon jug of holland gin a peck of brummagen jewellery and robbed the aborigines right and left he wore the same shirt the year round slept with his dogs and invested his groschens in such manhattan dirt as he could conveniently transport upon his person thus he enabled his aristocratic descendants to wax so fat on unearned increment that some of them must forswear their fealty to uncle sam and seek in europe a society whose rough edges will not scratch the varnish off their culture mrs bradley martin does not exactly look every inch a queen her horizontal having developed at the expense of her perpendicular suggesting the rather robust physique of her father's beer-barrels 
Still, she is an attractive woman, having the ruddy complexion of an unlicked postage stamp and the go-as-you-please features of a Turkish carpet. Her eyes are a trifle too ferrety, but the osculatory power of her mouth in old Lang Syne must have been such as to give Cupid's spinal curvature. Her nose retreats somewhat precipitately from the chasm, but whether that be its original pattern, or it has been gradually forced upwards by eager pilgrims to her shrine of adjustable pearls, is a secret hidden in her own heart. Like Willie Wally Astor, she finds the customs of this country too crass to harmonize with her supersensitive soul, and spends much time dangling about the titled slobs on the other side. Some time ago she purchased the epicene young Earl of Craven as husband for her daughter, in the humble hope of mixing cooperage and coronets, and may yet be grandma to some little Lord Bunghole or fair Lady Firkin. As a pusher in society she can give points to Mrs. Potter Palmer or the wife of a millionaire pork packer. Although she has seen the bluff of the notorious Smith Vanderbilt Belmont female, and raised her out of her bunion repositories, she has probably not yet reached the summit of her social ambition. Bred to shabby gentility, Miss Alva Smith proceeded to splurge when she captured a Vanderbilt. She had probably never seen a hundred-dollar bill until permitted to finger the fortune of the profane old ferryman who founded her husband's aristocratic family. She was a parvenu, a nouveau riche, and could not rest until she had proclaimed that fact by squandering half a million of the man's money, whom she subsequently dishonored, on the ball which Mrs. Bradley Martin set herself to beat. Having been divorced for a cause, she proceeded to crown her gaucheries by purchasing for her ligneous-faced daughter a disreputable duke who owes his title to a grand-aunt's infamy, is the descendant of a plebeian who rose to power by robbing dead soldiers and prostituting his sister to a prince. Mrs. Bradley Martin has trumped two of her rival's cards, and a social game like Seven Up is never out till it's played out. The denunciation of the ball by Dr. Rainsford proved him not only a notoriety-seeking preacher, but a selfish parasite who lacks sufficient sense to disguise his hypocrisy. It contained not one word of protest against the amassing of enormous fortunes by the few at the expense of the many, not a single plea for justice to a despoiled people, not one word of Christian pity for their woes. It was simply a warning, foolishly flung from the housetop instead of whispered in the closet, that such reckless waste would breed discontent in the home of want, would make demagogues and agitators dangerous. Dr. Rainsford would not alter but conceal existing conditions. His theory is that robbery is all right so long as the people do not rebel, thereby imperiling the system by which they are despoiled. 
from his fashionable pulpit and sumptuous home he hurls forth his anathema maranatha at those who would presume to abridge the prescriptive rights of the plutocracy who doubt that grinding penury in a land bursting with fatness is pleasing to the all-father he would by no means curtail the wealth of deves or better the condition of lazarus but thinks it good policy for the former to refrain from piling his plate so high in the presence of the hungry plebs lest the latter cease crying for crumbs and swipe the tablecloth dr rainsford is a paid servant of deves his duly ordained pandarus his duty is to tickle his master's jaded palate with spiritual treacle seasoned with jamaica ginger to cook up sensations as antidotes for ennui if the agitators cause a seismic upheaval that will wreck the plutocracy what is to become of the fashionable preachers dr rainsford would not abolish belshazzar's feast he would but close the door and draw the blinds that god's eye may not look upon the iniquity nor his finger trace upon the frescoed walls the fateful men men tekel upharsin save thy breath good doctor to cool thy dainty broth for mad with pride thy master hears nor heeds the gabble of the goose beneath his walls nor the watch-dog's warning gnaw thy bone in peace for the people schooled to patience and amused with panaceas will scarce resent the trampling of one more parvenu upon their necks be she ever so broad of beam if some years hence they should rise against the robbers led on by dangerous demagogues repine not for every dog sacerdotal or otherwise can but have his day turgid talmage must likewise unload talmage who presumes to teach not only theology but political economy who interlards his sermons with strange visions of heaven dreams of hell and still more wonderful hints on how to make a people terrestrially prosperous he like thousands of able editors apologizes for such vulgar extravagance by urging that it puts money in circulation makes business better and helps the people by supplying employment has the world passed into its dotage or simply become an universal asylum for idiots if wanton waste makes business better then uncle sam has but to squander in balmasque or other debauchery his seventy-five billions of wealth to inaugurate an industrial boom to gratify their taste for the barbaric to advertise themselves to all the earth as the eastern termini of westbound equines the bradley martins wiped out of existence five hundred thousand dollars of the world's wealth leaving just that much less available capital for productive enterprises they might as well have burned a building or sunk a vessel of that value it is urged that labor was employed and paid quite true but tell me thou resounding ministerial vacuum thou unreflecting editorial parrot where is its product what has society to show for the expenditure of this energy a hole in its working capital a hiatus in its larder caused by employing and sustaining labor not to produce but to destroy 
prodigality on the part of the rich personally benefits a few parasites just as the bursting of a molasses barrel fattens useless flies but waste by reducing the amount of wealth available for reproduction breeds general want a thousand editors have screamed in leaded type that it were worse for the wealthy to hoard than waste thou lunatics go learn the difference between a car and its load of cotton a bolt of muslin and that wherewith it is measured a nation's wealth and its exchange media what does a man with the wealth he hoards does he not seek to make it earn an increment concentration of capital may be bad for the people but destruction of capital takes the tools from their hands and the food from their lips the court of louis fifteenth which american snobs have just expended half a million trying to imitate likewise made business better by wasting wealth madame du barry posing as public benefactress and receiving no end of enconiums from paris shopkeepers jewel merchants and mantua makers much money was put in circulation and labor employed in furnishing forth the transient splendors of players and prostitutes but somehow france did not prosper finally not even the pitiless screws of the tax farmer could wring blood from the national turnip the working capital of france was so far consumed that her people stood helpless perishing of hunger finally madame du barry was supplanted as public benefactress by one with an even sharper tang to her tongue namely la belle guillotine who blithely led the quadrille d'honneur with a robespierre for concert to music furnished gratis by the raucous throats of ragged sans-culottes instead of lords and ladies treading the stately minuet in versailles saloons adorned with beauty roses the bare feet of hungry men beat time to the fierce carmagnol on parisian pavements it is not a little suggestive that the participants in this foolish fandango should have turned for inspiration to the court of louis fifteenth whose debauchery and depravity the historian declares had not been paralleled since the year of tiberius and commodus that the bradley martin function should have been copied from the extravaganzas of a harlot what glorious exemplars for new york's four hundred a dissolute king and a woman thus apostrophized by thomas carlyle thou unclean thing what a course was thine from that first truckle-bed where thy mother bore thee to an unnamed father forward through lowest subterranean depths and over highest sunlit heights of harlotdom and rascaldom to the guillotine axe which shears away thy vainly whimpering head of the three hundred and fifty male revellers more than one hundred were costumed as louis the fifteenth while but three considered washington worthy of imitation was this the result of admiration in new york's hopper suckles for this wretched roi fanion or king do-nothing whose palace was a brothel and whose harlots stripped his subjects of their paltry earnings and left them to perish 
Louis the Fifteenth, who permitted his country to be ruined, its revenues squandered, its provinces lost, and half a million men sent to an untimely death that a prostitute might be revenged for an epigram. Is that the kind of man our money lords admire? Louis lived until the fleur-de-lis of France was struck down in every land and dishonored on every sea, then died, deserted by his drabs, cursed by his country, and was consigned to the grave and the devil as unceremoniously as though he were a dead dog. And now more than one hundred men, who have stripped the people to enhance the splendor of palaces, don the royal robes of this godless rake, and do homage to bogus Dubarry's. Small wonder that Dr. Rainsford feared such colossal impudence might serve to remind Americans how France got rid of royalty, might evoke a hoarse growl from the many-headed monster, might cause some dangerous demagogue to stir, perchance a Danton. Fit patron saint for our own plutocracy is this swinish king, once called Bien-Am, the well-beloved, but after some thirty years of Bradley Martinism, named Am de Bu, a soul of mud, how much our super-select society resembles the Madame du Barry's, the Duc d'Aguillon, and Abbé Thérèse, who made the court of Louis a byword and a reproach, his reign a crime, himself a hissing and a shaking of the head of the nations suggestive indeed that at the swellest of all swell affairs in the american metropolis there should appear according to the press dispatches ten madame de pompadour eight madame de maintenon four madame de la valliere and three catherines of russia good god has our best society come to such a pass that its proudest ladies delight to personate notorious prostitutes there was no Racine or Molière, no Charlotte Corday or Madame de Stel. The men posed as profligate kings, the women as courtesans. Yet in that same city young Mr. Seeley is arrested for looking at a naked dancing girl, and little Egypt has to cut it when she hears the cops. And what is the difference, pray, between a pompadour and a five-point nymph du pave? simply this the one rustles in silks for diamonds the other hustles in rags for bread their occupation being identical new york was tory even in revolutionary times from its very foundation it has been at the feet of royalty and mouthing of divine right it is ever making itself an obtuse triangle before the god of its idolatry its knees and nose on the earth its tail feathers in the air but we had yet to learn that it considered that divinity which doth behedge a king capable of sanctifying a woman's shame, transforming a foul leman into an angel of light. Catherine of Russia was an able woman, but a notorious harlot, foul as Milton's portress of hell, a woman who, as Byron informs us, loved all he things except her husband. Is that why the masqueraders preferred the character of Empress Catherine to that of Martha Washington? Did they consider it more in keeping with the company? Strange that each Russian empress was not attended by a few of her favorite grenadiers, with the fair-faced Lenskoy, 
her boy-lover thrown in as Lagniappe. More than one hundred Louis Fifteenths and only ten pompadours. What a pity! But we may presume that each pompadour, like the frail original, was in herself a host. Eight Matignons, four Valiers, and only one Louis XIV present, to look after his personal property. How proud a genuine American gentleman, one untainted with royalist fever, would have felt to see his wife or daughter posing as the Liman of Lanskoy, of Louis XV, or Le Grand Monarque, of whom three-eyed Billy of England once said that he selected young men for his ministers and corrupt old cats for his mistresses. Half a million dollars gone up in frippery and flowers, and the bedizened gang didn't get half the fun out of it that a party of country yaps will extract from a candy-pulling or a husking bee. The pompadours and dubarries didn't know how. Louis the Fifteenth went around by himself in droves, stiff and uncomfortable as a Presbyterian Sunday school, wishing every time his rapier galled his keebs or tangled his royal legs that he had remained comfortably dead in that dog-hole at Saint-Denis. There was entirely too much formality for fun. The next time New York's toad-eaters give a bal-masque, they should disguise themselves as American sovereigns and their consorts. Of course it will be a trifle difficult for them to play the part of respectable people, but they will find even awkward effort in that direction refreshing, and calculated to inspire them with respect for their country's flag. End of chapter 12 The Bradley Martin Balmasque